10 to 15 protesters um, who charged at the officers. Some of the protesters, they took the baton of uh, some of the officers and then they started um, using the baton to attack the officers. And then that's when one of the officers, I guess, felt that he was very uh, in a very tough situation and uh, he, he pulled out a gun and then I saw him fall to the ground. That is the sounds of violence and um, a journalist, freelance journalist, uh, reporting the scenes from Hong Kong's major international airport, which was again shut down today for a second time. Uh, As we move into week 10 of these protests uh, that have been in the streets of Hong Kong, and it all started over a bill that would have allowed China to extradite and punish residents arbitrarily. And it has now morphed into things like uh, demands for a free election, which, of course, China will never let happen for several reasons. And namely would be they're not ever going to allow Hong Kong to slip away. But of course, on Monday, the protest was to shut down Hong Kong's airport. And then, believing it worked, they did it again for a second day today. And now China is using language like terrorism, and they've increased military exercises and troop, uh, as well as weaponry along the borders, in what I think is becoming a very clear life and death uh, fight and um, standoff that's about to break over this nation's fight for democracy. And uh, whether these protesters can hold on, I think, depends on what the world will allow China to get away with. John Robson joining us now. And you can, of course, read him in the National Post. He's also the executive director over at Climate Discussions Nexus. So good to have you, John. We are, of course, into day two of the protests that have shut down the airport. This is the financial hub of Hong Kong. And um, 10 weeks in, uh, you see this as drastic, but I think we've hit a point where we may be heading into something quite dangerous. I think we are basically now seeing the shoals. I think we have actually been in dangerous territory from the beginning for a reason that Andrew Coyne pinpoints in today's National Post, that neither side can afford to back down. And this is the problem. He says the protesters, because of their way of life, indeed their very lives are at stake, the Beijing-backed government for the precedent it would set and the hope it would inspire. Because as I've mentioned before when we discussed this, dictatorships are brittle. Mm -hmm. They're hard, but they are brittle. And they can shatter fairly easily. They, uh, or, or it's like a banks in the old days when they had only enough money in the vault to satisfy the people likely to show up. If everybody came and asked for their money all at once, there's no way they could meet it. But of course, as long as everybody who did come in got their money, um, nothing. There was no panic. And it, the same thing is true. Tyrannies have a sort of a, a supply of repression on hand sufficient to meet anybody likely to be foolish enough to challenge them on any given day. But if people start thinking, hey, you know what, they're not going to do it, they're afraid or they're incompetent or they're weak, then everybody suddenly goes freedom and it all comes tumbling down. Like when the Berlin Wall, you know, the the, the Berlin Wall came down by mistake. Mm -hmm. It was actually something that was a proposal under consideration but hadn't been approved that was at the bottom of a stack and somehow got into the hands of a newsreader. And when they said, oh, they're going to be opening the wall here, then the question was, will they shoot or won't they? And when the answer was, no, we won't shoot, it was all over. And the Chinese regime understands that all too well, and therefore they will shoot. Uh, it has never, there has never been any possibility that they could allow this to continue, regardless of the price they're going to pay 
uh, in terms of economic sanctions, mm-hmm. damage to their reputation, even their strategic position in the world, because to allow the protests to succeed would threaten the survival of the regime. Right. And the big problem is that uh, a lot of people from China do business in Hong Kong. And the last thing the Chinese government wants them to see is unrest and, uh, you know, learn things that the Chinese government doesn't allow them to learn. So there's also that risk. But it, it also, in a bigger picture where people will say, why do I care? I mean, you cannot care about another country's democracy. I'm not sure how people do that, but you will care if we fall into a recession because all of a sudden there's a financial collapse in Hong Kong. Yes, and and again, if if they take Hong Kong and nothing happens and they crush it, then what if what about Taiwan? You know, the appetite goes with the eating. We have learned. Uh, again, you don't want to have everything come back to Hitler, but remember Neville Chamberlain in 1938 saying it's so horrifying to think that we are trying on gas masks and so on because of trouble in a faraway country about which we know little. And yeah, so Hong Kong is far away unless you're from there or have family there. But if the Chinese get that, and then this is the other problem, the Chinese are in something of a cleft stick because it is very serious. You know, I just think it was Andrew who said that, what, what are we going to do if Hong Kong gets crushed? And said one thing we could do is, is revisit the, this one China policy, we could recognize Taiwan as an independent country. But if we do that, are we willing to use armed force? And in the case of Canada, as usual, are we able to use armed force if the Chinese should decide Hong Kong is next? Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, the Chinese problem is it's not necessarily that if they let Hong Kong be free, you know, that Shanghai will rise up the next day. The problem is what will happen in Tibet. What will happen among the Uyghurs? What will happen in disaffected regions uh, along the border where there are ethnic minorities? China is actually remarkably homogenous by and large ethnically, but there are parts of it that aren't, including Tibet, which, although they're trying desperately to fill it up with Chinese people, has never, the, the locals have never accepted the annexation. So they, they can't afford to be weak, but the risk of being strong is that they're going to do something brutal, that they're going to end up killing tens of thousands of people, which unlike Tiananmen Square, right. where the casualties were very high, but here you couldn't hide it. Yeah, and that's what I think a lot of people are wondering. Are we at a Tiananmen uh, moment? You've got thousands of troops amassed at the border. You know, Donald Trump is urging for calm. Um, and I don't know if, if they'll allow for a third, a fourth, a fifth day of shutting down this, this airport. When do you get the sense that uh, China will finally say enough? I think I think they're pretty close to it now because it was something like one of the news stories I think said two million people have been out in the streets, which you know even in Hong Kong that's a lot of people. Yes, two more than a quarter of the city's population were in the streets in early June. Andrew Coyne says, uh, so you know you, you're really up against it. This this is not a few malcontents. This is not a radical fringe. You can you can say that you know and you can mm-hmm. tell your own people that. But but the fact is that you are going to have to crush the populace of Hong Kong. And if you do that, there will literally be blood running in the streets. But if you don't do it, then you're going to be chased out because the the protesters understand what's at stake. They must get control of Hong Kong away from the tyrants in Beijing. And and if it comes to a test of strength, of course, you know, the Chinese government is going to win, mm-hmm. but it's going to win at colossal cost. And that's why I think, uh, as Andrew says, the real question for us, you know, isn't will it happen or won't it, because we can't really control that. The question is, should it happen? Are we going to do anything? Or are we going to say, don't rock the gravy train off the rails? Right. Think how much money there is in winking at repression. 
which I sincerely hope that we will not do. If money could buy happiness, it would have by now, you know, doubling our income, which the Chinese aren't going to do anyway, won't make us taller or stronger, younger or better looking. But we can we can be principled. But and, and Donald Trump, I think, has been quite disappointing here. Again, Andrew evokes John Kennedy going to Berlin at the time of the Berlin crisis, saying it's been a Berliner. Um, that the whole free world made it clear to Khrushchev, who in fact was not nearly as brutal as the people now in power in China, though his manners sometimes lacked polish, but the, they made it clear this this is the free world's fight. NATO would fight over Berlin. There were, there were American troops in West Berlin, not enough to defend it, but enough a tripwire. You kill Americans if you take the city, and if you kill Americans, you're at war with the United States. Yeah. Well, you know, Andrew Scheer put out a, a tweet, and I think, um, you know, it's not a partisan topic. We've got 300,000 Canadians in Hong Kong that will be directly impacted uh, by anything that happens. Um, and he put out a tweet saying, you know, we are all Hong Kongers now, and it's in everyone's interest that we commit to the democracy and human rights and the rule of law. It'll be interesting to see if if other leaders in Canada can jump on this, um, you know, whether or not it's symbolic, but at least he is saying something. Yeah, I mean, a symbol is a good start. If Justin Trudeau commits his prestige, then maybe he'll do more than that. Again, bearing in mind the limited options that we have. And then you wonder, where's the left on this? You know, where's Jagmeet Singh? You know, don't tell me about human rights if your heart is not stirred by these protesters. Where is Elizabeth May on this? Um, do they do they care at all? Um, because if if you go blithering on about your devotion to human rights and then you see something where there's got real, you know, pellet in eye, police repression, tear gas, batons, that sort of thing's going on. And you're like, oh, no, that's not what I meant. It was microaggression that really gets me riled up. This is fine. Then we know what you are. Uh, so in, in the name of you know, self-interest, moral and political, they need to say something pretty, pretty vigorous. Sure. And I don't know if you caught the story. I mean, it's an important story. And certainly I think we're, we're starting to learn. Maybe Mr. Trudeau is starting to learn why it's not OK to admire a dictatorship. But, you know, uh, a CSIS uh, top Canadian spy um, has come out and basically said they are the greatest threat, and he was pretty clear about saying it's a clear threat of what they're doing behind closed doors here in Canada. Yeah, and, and I think we're, we're in one of these situations where the security establishment, it's like what they really think of the Department of Finance versus what you hear from the Prime Minister or even the Finance Minister about how splendid deficits are, how harmless, that the security establishment knows perfectly well what's going on with China. Uh, it, it's always reassuring that there are a lot of people in government who are not fools or rogues. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's like when, when Interpol and others were starting to call London Londinistan because the British government was failing to deal with the terror threat. Don't think the British police didn't know, at least a lot of them. Uh, and the same thing is here, too. Clearly, our security establishment understands what China is and why it's a threat. But again, are we going to tell Huawei you're not getting into our communications backbone? Or are we going to say, you know, it would be really super trendy to be anti-anti-communist and, you know, nothing could happen to our security. It's like Pierre Trudeau, you know, there's sort of a fundamental unseriousness. In this case, it was the Soviet Union. Since nothing can happen to Canada, we can afford to posture and pirouette and act, uh, act like a cool undergraduate in some left-wing class. Um, but one hopes that even, you know, the senior ranks of the armed forces and elsewhere, there are people who, even those who seem terribly politically correct when they speak in public, in private are very blunt, and that we will at least make this decision 
uh, and then move on from there to do things like rebuild our military. Well, it's a fascinating time, and maybe uh, China and Hong Kong will uh, force uh, some leadership moments here during the election campaign, and uh, certainly may wake Canadians up. All right, John, thanks so much. We'll continue watching, and we'll we'll probably reach out to you again. Thank you. No doubt we will. It is John Robson who knows an awful lot about this and, of course, writes about it, so you can catch that in the uh, National Post. Andrew Shear tweeting out a little bit uh, earlier today, quote, As Beijing amasses troops at the Hong Kong border, now is the time for everyone committed to democracy, freedom, human rights, and the rule of law to stand with the people of Hong Kong, including the 300,000 expat Canadians. Now and in the coming days, we are all Hong Kongers. So yes, very big story, very big implications right around the world, and we should be watching.